мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The attempts to track and understand the legacies of the collapse of the Soviet Union and its reverberations in Russia today is of increasing interest among scholars and journalists. How has the Soviet Union's implosion influenced Russia's restoration under Vladimir Putin? How does the creation of the myth of the Great Patriotic War provide the language and symbols for its reenactment in eastern Ukraine? And how has the annexation of Crimea, the war in Donbass, and increasing tensions with the West provide Russians with a new national idea and meaning? For some answers, I turned to Sean Walker to discuss his new book, The Long Hangover, Putin's New Russia and the Ghosts of the Past. Sean Walker is the former Moscow correspondent for The Independent and, most recently, for The Guardian. Educated at Oxford University in Russian and Soviet history, he since lived and worked as a journalist in Russia for over a decade. His new book is The Long Hangover, Putin's New Russia and the Ghosts of the Past, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Sean Walker. So I, th- I thought we'd start by, you know, you've been a journalist in Russia and you've been living there for a long time and, and now you're actually moving on to Central Europe. So I thought we'd start by just having you talk about your experience of reporting in Russia and how that led to this book of the long hangover. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I was, uh, by the time I left, um, just recently, I'd been working as a foreign correspondent in Russia for, for more than 10 years. Um, and I, I'd lived in Moscow for, for about 14 years. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I obviously like, like many foreign correspondents, I'd always had the idea that, that maybe I would, I would write a book at some point. Um, but I think it was really the events of 2014, um, you know, the, um, Maidan followed by Crimea, followed by the war in East Ukraine, um, that were the sort of, I guess that they kind of made things and ideas from before sort of slot into place and provided this kind of framework um and uh, so you know in 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 some sense the events of 2014 were this sort of extraordinary unexpected tragic um thing that nobody saw coming and in another sense you know they looked kind of almost not inevitable but perhaps like the culmination of of, of things that had been sort of building for a while so i think that was probably um that was the I think the, the reason to the decision to write the book and the motivation to write the book um, came from from those events. And also, you know, I mean, I think in 2014, things obviously became a lot more 
vicious between Russia and the West. There was a lot more talk about information wars, feeling that you were being made to be sort of part of the story or a combatant or whatever. And I think there was also just a bit of a cathartic element that, you know, I felt that I'd had probably quite an unusual experience um, in, uh, in terms of what I'd covered in 2014 that, you know, I'd been on Maidan, I'd been in Crimea during the annexation, I'd been talking to the commanders in Donetsk, talking to government people in Kiev, talking to government people in Russia. Um, and, you know, there weren't so many um, people who'd had all of, who'd sort of covered it from all of those sides. And I just got quite tired of, of kind of arguing with people on all sides um, and, and sort of thought, you know what, it's just going to be really cathartic for me to write down what I saw and what I think. Um, and then I can just sort of shove my book in people's face and run away from the arguments. Yeah, which is uh, which I think is a good a good idea, considering how things are around this particular issue. Um, you know, one of the things I uh, and it's, I have to say, I think there are more uh, attention to this issue of the the legacies or the threads um, of the collapse of the Soviet system and, and how and the psycho I think really the psychological or the cultural psychological impact it had on a Russian identity concepts of the nation, things like this. And your book too, it fits within this literature as well in the sense that the, it's very much about the weight of the past and, and the trauma of the past of the, of Russia's 20th century. Um, and even, you know, the title of the book, The Long Hangover and its structure certainly suggests this. So talk about this, this weight of the past and how you understand it in the context of say Russia in the last 25 years. So obviously that's that, that's kind of um, you know, it's a huge question um, and, and a complicated one. And I think when I probably when I first started um, writing about Russia uh, in kind of two thousand and five two thousand and six, um, and there were there was a there was a sort of cohort of of journalists who had been based in Moscow in the nineties, um, who would sort of say you know this is just just a part of those journalists. Obviously some were very kind of you know, anti-Putin, um, to put it simply, um, from the beginning. But there were there was a sort of cohort of people who would say, "Look, you don't understand. You don't understand what the '90s were like. We can't criticize Putin, because um, uh, because you know, you, you have to think about what's gone before." And uh, and you know, this seemed to me to be a little bit of a of a cop out, uh, especially when you get to sort of two thousand and eight, two thousand and ten, two thousand and twelve. Um, and we're still talking about sort of comparing things with the 90s. And I think, uh, you know, from that perspective, it, it, there's no doubt that sort of Putin and, and the regime have, have like used and exploited um, the, the collapse and the memories of the 90s. Um, and, and that's sort of a separate topic. But I think, you know, I think it does. I think this moment um, for many, many people um, does sort of infuse uh, this moment of collapse, um, this moment of, of sort of, I guess, losing your way um, on these two levels, on the sort of macro country level that you, you felt like you were part of this big thing and then it disappeared. Um, and on the sort of micro individual level that, you know, even if you weren't a committed communist um, and, and not many people were by, by the end of the 80s, that you sort of, you understood um, you understood sort of the rules of the game. You understood what you needed to do to to move forward in life. You understood language and accolades and all this kind of thing. Um, and suddenly that collapses. And obviously for some people, 
that's a wonderful opportunity and and the best thing that could have possibly happened. Um, uh, obviously, in the in the sort of newly independent states, other than Russia, for many people, that's the, the sort of renaissance of, of a national idea. But I think for a lot of people in Russia, um, and and you know, a lot of people in places like East Ukraine, um, there are many people who never quite get over that um, that that sort of loss of meaning. Um, and you know, it's, it it seems to come back um, again and again. And you know, I mean, the the sort of I think Vladimir Putin's personal experience um, in Dresden, which has become, you know, perhaps almost a bit of a cliche at this point, if you know Putin there calling up and, and being told Moscow is silent um, and, 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 you know, carrying that memory with him. Um, again, you know, I think I think it has been perhaps, you know, we in, in some ways it's been overused in other ways. I mean, I, I you know, I think that does infuse um, a lot of his thinking. And I think, you know, of course, of course, sort of all wanting to, you know, of course, always being against revolution and state collapses is quite a self-serving position when you're the president of a country for the last 18 years, um, you know, minus four as prime minister. But, uh, but I think there is something genuine in that as well. Um, and I think, you know, and again, it was sort of obviously many of the characters in the book are these sort of you know, fairly unsavory in some cases, um, commanders uh, on the East Ukraine uh, in the East Ukraine war, and and you know there were all these kind of men, aged between sort of mid forties and mid fifties, who to me seemed like they they'd never really quite got over um, uh, the Soviet collapse. So yeah, I, I do think that that kind of plays um, quite a big role. You know, I think the, the sort of Svetlana Alexeyevich obviously writes about this a lot. Um, in a kind of more literary way, um, and in my book was a kind of attempt to try and look at how this has, how this has sort of impacted um, uh, the sort of more harder kind of political events and stories of the past few years. But it, you know, the, you you have this side of it, like this, the weight of the past in terms of uh, you know the disorientation and the the search for meaning, which I want to talk a bit more about later. Um, but you also have with that narrative, there's another narrative, and that is a narrative of remembrance and forgetting. Um, and this here, you get this into the stories of um, Russian national minorities within Russia, like Kalamiks and Chechens. And then once the with the annexation of Crimea, then you have Crimean Tatars. So, um, what is the talk before getting into the particularities of the the ethnic groups? Because I want to keep that separate. Um, there is a, a, a there is a struggle over remembrance and an effort to certainly remember properly. So talk about the politics of remembrance and history in Russia as you as it plays out in your story. So uh, so the, the kind of central, um, in as much as the, as the book has an argument, um, uh, and you know it's 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 meant more as a sort of. Uh, you know, a, a, a series of stimulating ideas rather than a sort of uh, an, an aggressive thesis that explains everything. But but in as much as it does have a thesis, it's that you know the Second World War was was used by Putin as as the sort of and um, as the sort of defining event of the twentieth century um, and the, the 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 primary building block of of the sort of new new proud Russia and new uh, Russian in the in the sense of Russia, the country, rather than the ethnicity, nationalism, um, and that and that this initially happens sort of uh, quite 
uh, organically. Uh, you know, it's not that it was not that sort of there was a meeting in the Kremlin and, and it was decided that this would be an excellent device. Um, it's sort of fairly unsurprising that when you sort of look back at, at Russian history uh, of the past century, um, that's the sort of standout event. You know, 1917 has lost um, has lost the sort of it's a, at the very least it's become divisive. 1991, although you know we already mentioned a bit the, the sort of nostalgia and 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 the, the sort of sense of loss at the collapse can also be exploited, but it's but it's a divisive memory because there are many people who who are delighted for that that, that happened and, and and sort of have enjoyed the opportunity since. So the Second World War becomes this sort of natural um, this natural lightning rod, if you like, for for, for kind of um, uh, creating a, a nation that, that that wants to feel proud of itself again and you know on, on, on the first victory day um, after when Putin comes in in 2000 which is just a couple of days after he's inaugurated the first time um, and he has this line that he you know he lines up the veterans and the modern Russian soldiers on Red Square and, and he says to the veterans through you we got used to being winners um, and that you know we this is going to help us not just in in wartime but in peacetime as well. And I think there's this real sense of of, of trying to create this this sort of winning uh, philosophy. Um, and you know, of course, this is this is uh, this is not. It's it's in no at no time my my intention is to sort of suggest that that Russia is in some way completely unique in this. I mean, I think you know I've just having spent a month kind of promoting the book and in post-Brexit Britain um, and sort of, you know, finding a, 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 I arrived at Oxford train station and, and the main display and the news agents at the train station was a magazine called Britain's Greatest Victories um, and this sort of big illustrated book of sort of victories. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the kind of rhetoric of, you know, in Britain taking back control and America kind of make America great again. I mean, this is, this is part of, um, this is part of, uh, this is sort of in, in many ways, sort of, you know, rally your nation around yourself 101 kind of thing. Um, but I think in the Russian case, you know, it's particularly interesting because, um, you know, when, when we're sort of dealing with, with trying to make America or Britain or whatever other country great again, it's quite a nebulous concept. We don't quite know you know, when exactly are we talking about that it was great? Which exact types of greatness are we trying to restore? Um, and obviously Putin has this, this this real hook of, you know, the country goes in the space of, I mean, on the one hand overnight, but perhaps, you know, in the space of a decade, let's say, from being sort of one of the two loads of power in the world to, to, to being this sort of laughing stock. So I think this this kind of sense of, of, of rebuilding pride is important. And so it's, yeah, it's my argument that the, the war fills this gap um, initially quite naturally then people sort of start to see just how powerful this is um, and sort of slowly but surely it kind of becomes this this all-consuming narrative um, you know the culmination of which comes in 2014 where suddenly you've got sort of people going into war wearing these second world war ribbons and, and that's become their symbol um, but that you know that within this thing within this war narrative of which of course there are very many elements um 
that are kind of awe-inspiring. And of course, there was just the, the most extraordinary sacrifice um, from the Soviet people, which you know, I, I at no point suggest shouldn't be marked in some way. But clearly, um, you know, what you've already alluded to about various nationalities that were persecuted during the war, you know, the whole issue of 1939 to 41, the issue of the you know partition of Eastern Europe after the war, um, all of these things uh, and of course, the issue of of the, of the 30s in Russia and of, of the Stalin regime that won the war, um, you know, when you turn this into um, the real sort of national building block, um, all of these things become taboo. Uh, and even if, you know, even if they're not, some of them are completely denied, some of them are just not talked about. Um, but, you know, it kind of creates this, the, the, these, these rippling problems, I think, um, in all these peripheral aspects of the war victory. You know, the way I see this, what the war, the war is for, for Russia is, you know, the, all of the divisiveness of the 20th century, the, the war smooths over. It's the one collect, historical collective experience that everyone, more or less, can come together as a collective, right? Despite all of the disagreements and all of the different narratives, the, the victory of the war is a central collective memory that other events in, in Russia's 20th century doesn't provide. Um, and therefore, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense that for a country like Russia that's searching for a post-Soviet identity, that the war as the one good thing or the one collective memory, that the new memory would be somehow based or derived from that. I think, you know, I think with Ukraine, obviously, I mean, uh... Uh, yes, absolutely. And that's why there's, you know, I have a sort of, uh, you know, I think U Ukraine is going through a process that is in many ways similar to the Russian one um, of, of kind of trying to work out what this, what this post-Soviet identity should be like. And yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, the end of my, of my chapter on, on the war is this sort of family in, in rural Eastern Ukraine that have spent a month with, you know, the a, a separatist position at one side of their street um, with uh, you know orange and black flags and talking about the Soviet war effort and a red and black Ukrainian flag and bandera kind of flags at the other side of the street and kind of shelling each other over their heads for a month. So you know, yeah, I, th I think absolutely. I think I think you know, the Second World War um, is 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 hugely important um, in on, in the sort of Ukrainian side of things as well. At the same time as you have this uh, this collective memory, I mean, you do point out that when you look at it from, say, non-Russian minorities, like you focus on Kalamiks, Chechens, Crimean Tatars, and Ukrainians, you, of course, have a, a much more complicated problem because Kalamiks, Chechens, and Tatars, of course, are deported. Um, Ukraine, after the war, there is a vicious suppression of, uh, of national groups. Um, there's the whole issue of, you know, taking over Western Ukraine by the Soviets uh, um, and then having to pacify the nation after World War II. It's in, and then, of course, the memory of the famine. Um, so how does the this experience of these ethnic minorities um, fit within your larger story of this remembering and forgetting? Well, so I think, you know, the... The issue of the deportations is an interesting one because, uh, I, you know, again, uh, I just always sort of like to make this caveat that, you know, I, I think probably uh, 
I think there's there's probably not a nation on earth that that doesn't have a selective memory of 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 its wars and uh, and the sort of darker sides of of wars and the, and there usually are some. Um, but it does seem to me that there is um, a qualitative difference um, with with the way that the, the sort of Russian um, memory has erased so many parts of this. And I think that that's, of course, partly because there was this long period um, between the victory and perestroika where you couldn't talk about a lot of this stuff. Um, but having said that, there was, you know, in, in, in the late 80s and the early 90s, there was huge interest in topics like the deportations. And, you know, let's, I mean, the, the deportations were, were two million, I mean, this is excluding the post-war ones, but the, the ones during the war of, of the nationalities, like the, you know, uh, Soviet Germans, um, uh, Chechens, Kalmyks, etc., etc. Um, it was two million of, of, of the country's population kind of loaded onto trains and driven out to the steppe. Um, it's pretty, it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty enormous figure. Um, and I find that even talking to quite educated um, Russians, people, yeah, certainly if they're, if they're in Crimea, they've, they've heard about the Crimean Tatars, for example. But if you talk to people in Moscow or St. Petersburg, it'll be in the back of their heads that or maybe there was something about a deportation. Um, but but um, really, um, it, it's not in any way part of the narrative. Um, and, you know, in some cases, like in the case of the Kalmyks, um, you know, you go to Kalmykia and uh, it, it's a sort of, you know, it's, it's almost a sort of hurt, the hurt feelings. Uh, you know, we don't know why this hasn't been kind of owned up to. We fought, you know, we won all these medals fighting the war. We were loyal citizens and we were treated like this. Um, but essentially, it's sort of somehow been dissolved without um, without any sort of, serious consequences for for say the Russian state um, but I do think you know I think in other cases um, it, obviously that I mean the most obvious cases is, is of the Chechens and I think you know the, the memories of the deportation um, were quite important in in what happened when the Soviet Union collapsed uh, and in the case of the Crimean Tatars um, you know if you don't you know if you go around the the, the war museum in Simferopol um, you would more or less get the idea that the Crimean Tatars were were kind of deported justifiably and you know maybe one or two of them didn't have due process but but essentially they were collaborators um, and and you know that 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 just creates such difficulties for the present day um, and that you know these the, the, you know especially in the case of the Tatars who weren't allowed back until uh, the late 80s unlike most of the other nationalities so you know if you're in a if you're in a place where you believe these people to be collaborators then um, you know of course you're going to be a little bit irritated when they show up and and sort of start demanding rights and start demanding homes and things um, so yeah I think you know all of these all of these nationality situations are sort of different in, in and have their own um, dynamics and their own consequences um, but as part of the broader result um, of, of, of this sort of simplified narrative. I think they all bring with them problems. And then of course, the, the two biggest ones um, are, um, are, are the Ukrainian issue. Um, and that's a problem from both sides. And I think it's a problem, you know, part of the problem around the whole, you know, this whole debate about whether or not um, there was fascist elements on Maidan, whether or not, you know, Ukrainians are fascists or not. Um, I think... Uh, you know, when you go and you read the documents about Stepan Bandera, it's fairly clear that he was at the very least, you know, his movement was fascist oriented. Um, but after 
in that case, you know, after 40 years of not being allowed to discuss it during the Soviet period, after 40 years of, of being told he was e evil and fascist because he was anti-Soviet rather than for any other reason, um, it sort of becomes natural that in the post-Soviet period, um, he's, he's seen as a hero. Um, and yeah, and then I guess the fi the final issue of that is is you know it's not an ethnic one so much, but is the is for for Russia itself, um, and and the question of the purges and and the the sort of um, the trauma of the thirties, um, and and how you deal with that when you're sort of celebrating um, the war that comes the, the war victory that comes next. I found it interesting the 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 place of the Winter Olympics in your narrative because. The title of it is is the Olympic Dream, suggesting that the Olympics was uh, suggested a, a possibility, right? Um, and it, it really serves as the, the the Maidan. It serves as the turning point, at least the way I read it, even before the Maidan. Um, so, so how how does where where do you place the Olympics in this story of what what it begins to unfold in two thousand fourteen? So I, yeah, I think the Olympics is really important, and you know, I was even told by um, a reasonably senior Russian official, and I, I don't think this is true, but it but it was interesting that they even said it to me was was that you know if if the Western reaction to the Olympics hadn't been so condescending, um, maybe things wouldn't have happened the way they did in Crimea, um, and I think you know I think sort of tracing through um, Putin over the years, uh, you know, I, I kind of. When I start off, I quote this article of his from 1999 about wanting to make Russia a, a what he calls a first tier nation, or, or rather wanting to wanting to ensure that Russia remains a first tier nation. Is this and his so, millennium message? Um, it's actually it's a newspaper column that he wrote just a few days before that, um, which was in Nizhevisma Gazeta, um, and it's sort of yeah, it's quite interesting. It's yeah, he talks talks a lot about he basically lays out his mission as he sees it, and 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 he you know, this. The suggestion is that sort of if if this first tier status, as he calls it, comes back, that uh, that uh, you know other things will kind of follow uh, more naturally, and so I kind of see that there's this there's this dual track with with Putin over the years. There's you know sometimes sometimes the best way to be a first tier nation is to be you know at the table, to be friendly, to be respected, to be brought into the tent. Other other times when sort of that fails um, on Putin's terms. It's obviously to be kind of aggressive and to lay down markers in the sand, and I saw sort of saw the the Winter Olympics as as the kind of uh, you know even though so so Russia wins the right to host the Winter Olympics in two thousand and seven, um, and I think even though by two thousand and seven it's it's fairly clear that you know things are not all great between Russia and the West. It's it's the year of um, Putin's Munich speech. It's um, you know the the Georgia War comes the next year. Um, but they have this idea of the Olympics, you know, Putin repeatedly refers to hosting Olympics as the sign that kind of Russia is back, essentially, after the Soviet collapse. You know, he goes to Guatemala, he speaks in English, it's it suggested that it was his personal kind of um, intervention that kind of swings the vote. Um, and in a way that we're just not hearing at all now ahead of the World Cup in Russia this summer, because I think by this point there are no illusions left. But ahead of the Olympics, even when the sort of rhetoric between Russia and the West is at its most heated, we sort of hear the Russians talking about um, about the Olympics as, as, as this big um, sort of impressive event where basically 
the world is going to respect Russia. Um, and, you know, even as you might remember in the book, there's a there's a scene uh, during the annexation of Crimea where I sort of got a, a microphone, a dictaphone rather, into the room when this Russian general was essentially talking to Ukrainian officers and trying to make them surrender. Um, and his, his big line is sort of, look at the TV, we're hosting the Olympics. You know, not every country gets to host the Olympics. <laughs> right. um, it was a fairly weak argument to sort of asking, for asking a bunch of soldiers to defect to you. Um, so, you know, I think, it, I think it's this, this huge thing. Um, and then, you know, for, 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 uh, and then, you know I mean, and I was, so I was covering the Olympics the whole time. Um, and, you know, they were extremely offended um, by what they thought was a sort of patronizing, uh, you know, to use their word, Russophobic coverage from the Western media about, for example, um, you know, the state of the the state of the sort of accommodation and, and, and so on. And, you know, I've had arguments not only with Russians about this. I think there, you know, a lot of people seem to feel that some of that coverage was off and, and you know, maybe maybe some of it was. But I think in an age of social media, um, you know, if you give the people who are meant to be transmitting your massive, brilliant sporting event uh, a hotel room without a door on it or whatever, uh, you know, you're going to be you're going to end up getting some jakey social media coverage. Um, but again, this was this was really um, this was really kind of taken um, to heart. Uh, and of course, then the, the the kind of boycott or or, you know, unspoken boycott by almost all uh, Western leaders. Um, uh, U.S. sending a fairly low-ranking de delegation that includes some gay athletes at protest at the, the homosexual propaganda law, um, and then right at the peak of this, you know, this thing that um, has been in preparation for years and years. Um, Ukraine kicks off uh, instead of these sort of pictures of of, of Sochi and and. And this victorious Olympics, although of course we later find out that um, many of them have been winning through doping. Um, but right in the middle of all of this, um, what the world is watching is not that, but is Molotov cocktails and snipers in Kiev. Um, and I think that uh, you know, I think that is 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 hugely um, offensive to Putin. And just the final thing is that again, you know, I think when when you're sitting there in in the stadium in Sochi. And watching the opening ceremony um, of the Olympics, and and I, I write about this in the book that it, you know you get this kind of, you have this sort of you know the the Olympic opening ceremony is of course where you can just show off and be patriotic and be jingoistic and put everything that you're proud of in your country on display, and it's kind of quite telling that you when you go through and watch the ceremony, which was a really impressive show, but you have this sort of you know this beautiful evocation of Tsarist Russia. Um, and then you have Soviet industrialization. Um, you don't have the war because you can't show military images, but you have Yuri Gagarin in 1961. Um, and then in 1961, it stops um, and there's nothing that comes after Yuri Gagarin. And it's this sort of fascinating indictment of the way that Russians see their own past half a century, that, that, that you know, that was the last thing that it was felt could be put on display as something to be proud of. And I kind of think that the Olympics itself essentially was that that last link in the chain you know that the fact that this ceremony is happening is itself the thing to be proud of and i think that was that was the idea behind the olympics all along but of course in the end 2014 ends up being remembered not for the olympics but for crimea and, and ukraine
So your book, you know, you have the kind of overarching political, geopolitical context uh, and the framework in which to try to make sense of it all. But alongside of that, you have a lot of voices of people that you talk to and you interview who are either somewhat connected to Russian military, but just also just regular people in, in your travels around the country. So talk about those people you encountered and, and what did you learn from them that you found interesting and worth pointing out and, and how did they their voices fit into your overall story? You know, I think obviously one of the jobs um, of, of any journalist, right, is to is to try and uh, to try and explain, um, you know, even if you don't like what people are doing or you don't sort of um, you don't think they've, they've made very good decisions, but to try and explain the rationale of, of where they're coming from. Um, so, you know, and I, I think, of course, sometimes um, you just meet people who are, you know, bad people doing bad things. Um, and there, there are some of those in the book. Um, um, but I, I, do th I did think that there were, there were interesting um, gradations of that. So, you know, whereas um, you have a couple of if you, if you know if we talk initially about the 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 commanders in the east ukraine war so you have a couple of of commanders there the the romanian who appears in the prologue and and igor strelkov who uh are you know fairly unpleasant people have you know have both have, have carried out sort of extrajudicial executions um and i i'm not suggesting that they're sort of um you know misunderstood um lovely people but i you know it is interesting that you know both it is, i i did find it fascinating to go and talk to them about what it you know where their motivations lay you can talk to strelkov and he tells you about how he was this committed uh stalinist uh, and then he's you know he's studying in the military history institute in the 80s and is allowed to read the the memoirs of the the white white officers um, and he kind of says, you know, overnight I changed from being a Stalinist to being a monarchist. Um, and, you know, yet another one of these people who sort of th this this kind of change of, of regimes really kind of impacted him. Um, and then you have someone like um, Alexander Khodorkovsky, um, the number two in the Donetsk separatist movement, who is not a Russian, but but a local from, from Donetsk or from Donbass. Um, and he was some, and so I kind of tell the story of... of um, the East Ukraine war largely through him. Um, and he was somebody who, you know, I think he's made some uh, dubious decisions and, and probably done some very bad things, but I, I found him a very intelligent and interesting person to talk to. And I found that he was able to articulate why things were happening um, in Donetsk um, much more clearly than, 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 than anyone else I'd spoken to. And, I, you know, and, what, I, and what was, how did he understand things? his life story to me was fascinating. I mean, he was, uh, he was doing his military service in the Soviet army in 1991 in a paratrooper regiment outside Moscow um, and was kind of called on to be, you know, be one of the brigades that was going to storm the white house and was kind of called off at the last minute. Um, and so, you know, this country that he dreamed of, you know, he dreamed of going into the KGB um, and suddenly the country collapses. He then ends up working for the Ukrainian, the, the Alpha Security Forces. Um, and uh, 
you know, he's then on Maidan in the Orange Revolution. He's on Maidan in, in uh, 2013, 14. Um, and, and, you know, he, he paints this picture of basically a whole life of serving these countries, which are kind of collapsing before his eyes. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, again, I think the, the reasons for, for what happened in, in, in Donetsk are kind of extremely complicated. And there are many of them and kind of hard, hard to summarize briefly. But I do think that, you know, I think there's a, there's this sort of narrative in, in Russia that, that what happened was this kind of indigenous uprising against a, a fascist threat, which I think is wrong. Um, but I equally think the narrative in, in Kiev and in, in often in the West of, you know, um, a, a, a sort of Russian invasion, occupation, um, completely manipulated, invented conflict out of nowhere um, is also a little bit wrong as well. And how are people, because you did travel around in, you, you, uh, in eastern Ukraine, so how do um, people who are living through the war, talk about their experiences and how they understand what's going on around them? So I thought, you know, there were, there were, there were clearly many um, different factors, many different stratifications at play um, when it came to how the people of, of Donbass, of, of East Ukraine, um, reacted to um, the events of 2014. I think there was a large part of it that would, there was a socioeconomic indicator behind it. Um, and, you know, I think uh, talking again about the, the sort of influence of the Soviet collapse, I think if you were living, so, you know, obviously D Donbass is this region that had um, all of these factories that were an integral part of the Soviet system and the Soviet economy. Um, and then kind of falls by the wayside a bit in the 90s. Um, you know, there are there are people like Akhmetov do have these plants that um, still employ people and are still profitable, but, but, but it feels like parts of Donbass really feel like an incredibly depressing place. Um, and, and, you know, whereas perhaps if you're a Western Ukrainian, you have this idea of, of Ukrainian nationalism to fall back on, if you're an Eastern Ukrainian, you've lost your Soviet identity and you're not part of new Russia, you're not part of this new Ukraine, it's quite difficult to know to know where to look. But I think if you were one of the people um, in Donetsk or in the other bigger cities who had made a reasonable success out of, of life, you know, perhaps you'd started a small business or you ran a shop or, you know, you traveled a bit, whatever, um, I think you were more likely to look at the events of 2014 and, and say, well, okay, I, I perhaps don't fully sign up to um, the sort of Lviv idea of what Ukraine is. I perhaps don't like some of the things that are being said on Maidan, um, but I'm well aware that, you know, the Maidan's bark is worse than its bite, that I don't want to have anything to do with these crazy separatists who are like picking up guns and, and sort of running amok. Um, and you are more likely to be pro-Ukraine. Um, if you were someone who um, felt that perhaps you hadn't, you'd lost out of the Soviet transition, you hadn't done well, you, your life was worse now, um, or at least, um, you know, you found it harder to see the point of life now compared to a probably rose-tinted view of what life was like 20, 30, 30 40 years ago. Um, you were much more likely to be amenable um, to the separatist messaging and to this idea of, of, of you know, joining up with Russia immediately, boosting your pensions, boosting your salaries, um, being part of this bigger national idea. 
Um, so I think that was one part of it. Um, I also think, I mean, I, I found it really interesting covering East Ukraine um, two years before uh, the Brexit stuff happened in Britain. Um, bear with me here <laughs> because uh you know i it doesn't sound like the most obvious comparison but uh one thing that you know I, that became really clear in 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 east ukraine was the extent to which kind of communities are divided along into you know groups that that don't talk to each other much so you know i would i would meet as an example like take the, the town of gorlovka um, you know this this town that was taken over by the the, the Donetsk People's Republic in 2014, and I, I was speaking in Kiev uh, to a refugee or an internally displaced person from Golovka who'd relocated his shop and so on to Kiev, and he was saying to me, you know, look, I've I've lived in Golovka my whole life, you know, everyone in Golovka is pro-Ukrainian. The the only people who supported separatists were total freaks, losers. You know, there were there were no there were no pro pro uh, Russian people in my town at all. I can guarantee that to you. Uh, and then about six months later, I was in of all places Magadan in the far east of Russia, um, and I met this family who had crossed the border into Russia uh, to Rostov and had you know signed up for this Russian program where they basically stick you on a plane and fly you out to a far-flung region to start a new life. Um, and they were also from Gorlovka. Uh, and the woman had worked in a supermarket. Um, I can't quite remember what, what the guy had done. Um, but they said to me, you know, we've lived in Gorlovka our whole life. Like, trust us, everyone in our town is pro-Russian. Uh, you know, I've never met anyone who was sort of would be into Maidan or was pro-Kiev. Uh, you know, the, the, the Kiev are just sort of killers and fascists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, the, the reason that I make the Brexit comparison was that sort of, you know, in, in the aftermath of that vote, and, you know, maybe there are elements of this with, with sort of Trump in America, um, you know, you would, you would read, I'd read these Facebook posts of friends of kind of, you know, who are these 52% of people? I don't know anyone. I've never met anyone who's sort of uh, pro-Brexit. Um, and, and, you know, you, you realize that as... As a foreign journalist, I mean, yeah, I think there's probably in, in, in Britain, there's questions of, of whether journalists could have done a, a bit better and maybe in America too. But at least in this case of, of, of covering this particular conflict, I sort of realized that we are in this kind of unusual position um, of, of talking to everybody, of being able to cross the lines, of being able to talk to people in Kiev, talk to people in Moscow. Um, and, you know, it, it led, to a, led to a situation where whenever you would go into a meeting in uh, I mean, we're used to it in Russia anyway, people thinking that we're the enemy, but you would also go into meetings in Kiev and because you were the Moscow correspondent, they would say, you know, you see everything through through like Moscow glasses. Um, but, you know, it did give you this, it did give you the, all these different perspectives um, on on the conflict. And you suddenly realise that actually, you know, nobody else is talking to all these people because if you're a diplomat based in Kiev, you're not talking to the separatists. If you're a Russian dealing with the separatist republics, you're not talking to Kiev. And even the people living in the places themselves weren't really talking to each other. You know, you, you've spent you know, 10 years or so being a, a foreign correspondent in Russia. Uh, you've been living there for a long time. So talk about some of the some talk about rep being a foreign correspondent in Russia in in terms of what are the challenges of doing that job what are the the things that are great about doing it and and your effort to try to present you know that country to the outside world so i would say 
um, you know, I think so traditionally as, as a Moscow correspondent, you know, you get Russia plus um, plus the sort of former Soviet republics to cover, um, which is, you know, this extraordinary, amazing, massive region just full of so many fascinating stories. Um, and you know, even after even after 10 years of, 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 of being in Moscow and, and sort of traveling, you know, quite often for two weeks per month. Um, there are so many kind of feature ideas and stories and kind of uh, insane stroke, inspiring stroke, absurd things that are happening kind of in all these different corners of Russia that are just uh, really excite me in a way that um, um, perhaps other parts of the world don't. Um, then, of course, you have the political story. Um and I think I've been quite lucky um, at The Guardian. You know, The Guardian has um, a lot of appetite for, for all kinds of different Russia stories and, and for getting out into the regions and for doing the off-diary things. Um, I think certainly in, in the last year or so, um, a couple of years maybe, um, you know, this, the, 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 the narrative and, and, and the story that people are interested in on Russia for many journalists, um, has obviously been in the main um, the Trump Russia story, which is a fascinating story. It's you know if um, uh, you know obviously if it's if it's proved that there was some kind of collusion, it's you know one of the biggest stories ever. Um, but it's been a very frustrating story to cover from Moscow because you know all of the developments come. Uh, from uh, you know leaks from disgruntled people in Washington, um, and you know being our you know you, so you you get there's a sort of procession of claims and theories which are floated, and you know the response in Moscow is for me is you know yes the, the, that is plausible. Um, I have absolutely no way of checking if it's true or not because, you know, I can't go and call my sources in the GIE because I don't have any sources in the GIE. Um, and, you know, it's it's become a little bit frustrating. And, you know, again, I mean, we've seen this, um, uh, you know, I've been quite pleased not to be um, in Moscow covering the, the sort of fallout from uh, what looks like a sort of hit, attempted hit on, on this former GIE agent in, in the UK. Um, because it's, 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 again, I mean, an extraordinary story, um, potentially huge, um, but quite unrewarding to report from Moscow. Um, so there's that, there's that sense of a lack of access, which I think is, is frustrating. It's always been the case, um, but it's got worse since 2014. Um, there are certainly still, you know, someone like me who's been there for ages, um, you know, there are certainly still people you can go and see to talk about the Kremlin and internal politics and so on, um, and sometimes quite interesting people, but trying to get anywhere close to, you know, intelligence agencies or the army or whatever is is, is pretty much impossible. Um, so that's that that and then when the story is has suddenly become so much about that, that can be quite frustrating. Um, I think probably for me, um, one of the most difficult parts of of being, you know, I I've been doing a bunch of kind of events around the book and I, there always seems to be a question of like, you know, did you feel threatened? Were you attacked? And, you know, frankly, not really. Um, you know, it can be a difficult atmosphere to work in, but I think, you know, touch wood and everything, so far kind of physical attacks have been restricted to um, 
Russian journalists and usually regional Russian journalists kind of unless they're investigating kind of Kadyrov or whatever. So, you know, that, that I think we, we have this extra layer of protection as foreign journalists. And, you know, I don't, uh, except for a sort of petty harassment, I, I don't find it a dangerous place to be. But I think what is difficult is um, uh, this. And again, there's <laughs> again, there are maybe more parallels to this creeping in in the West now as well. Um, but But this sense that you know, we are just shills, um, ca you know, carrying out a line. Um, and sometimes that comes out as aggressive. And that's fine, actually, I can deal with that. But what I find difficult is when it comes out as a sort of friendly statement of fact, um, that, you know, you'll be in East Ukraine and some sort of chatty um, Channel One reporter will sort of slap you on the back and say, look, you know, you've got your narrative, I've got my narrative, like, we're both doing the same thing, let's go and have a drink. And I'm sort of like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you do seem to be a nice guy, but like, I re like really, that's not what I'm really not trying to do that. Um, and, you know, and, and of course, there, there has there has been some terrible, um, terrible reporting on Russia. But uh, I think on the whole, um, I, of course, I think there is a difference. And I think, you know, I think if I think someone in the Russian foreign ministry would genuinely not think there was a difference between you know the BBC newsroom and the Russia Today newsroom and the way that decisions are made in those newsrooms. Um, and I, of course, you know, do think there is a decision. Uh, there, is, there is a huge difference. So you know, I, th I think sometimes that sort of overwhelming cynicism and this idea that sort of even the idea that a journalist there could even be a journalist who attempted not to be biased um, is kind of seen as ridiculous, um, and that that can be quite frustrating. And finally, you begin your book with this guy, the Romanian, this Russian guy who's uh, fighting in eastern Ukraine. And, and I really found um, the, his last words of the prologue, which you quote, really setting, not only setting up the book, but also, I think, being a thread for it, but, and, and then something that it continues to linger in, in post-Soviet space, generally in Russia in particular. And that is, he says, I want a strong country, one you can be proud of. I want life to have some meaning again. And, and it's this last point, this, I want life to have some meaning again, to be the most powerful part of this. So do you, how much do you consider Russia under Putin to be this search for life to have meaning again? I think that's a, like, like I sort of say, um, you know, I think in, in 1991, you do have this, you do have this sort of triple loss that if you're a russian an ethnic russian living in russia um you um you've not only have you lost the sort of ideology which you maybe weren't that worried about anyway but the whole system around it um you've lost your um you've lost your empire um or if you didn't consider it an empire you've you know had all these things disintegrating off the edges of your country and then you know the country the very country that you live in has has collapsed um, so, you know, get, coming back to that, you know, you have this, you have this thing where both on a personal level and on a, a broader level, there's a sense that things have sort of fallen apart and collapsed. And I think that doesn't get solved in the Yeltsin era, you know, in the Yeltsin era, um, perhaps for many people, it just, it's a continuation of this confusion. It's like, yeah, it's a disorientation. Yeah. You know, what on earth is happening? You know, why has this person got $10 million and why, you know, I don't understand why any of this is happening and, and sort of fairly justifiably, um, fairly justifiable confusion. Um, so yeah, I think, 
I think the Putin era starts as as sort of restoring, trying to kind of just put the foundation blocks of of, of life and the country back in place. Um, now, obviously, um, you know, we're now sitting here sort of 18 years into Putin. Um, and I think by this point, um, you know, by this point, clearly, when, when he's talking about uh, the, the disappointment of the collapse or the chaos of the 1990s or the importance of stability, um, there's an incredibly sort of self-serving element to that. Um, but I do think that, you know, at least initially, um, and certainly kind of putting this period in, into the historical arc, um, you know, yes, I think, I, th I think it is about um, uh, a sense of, of, of I mean, first of all, a sense of equilibrium, um, and then um, perhaps a sense of meaning as well. And, you know, that's, that's a long, I guess, and complicated conversation about, um, you know, what is <laughs> what is meaning in life, and you know, does the does the fact that Putin's there with a big screen behind him showing missiles um, uh, about to hit the United States is, is that does that mean that your 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 life has meaning again? Um, I think a lot of people would dispute that, um, but I, yes, I, I, I think. At its base, um, it's been about a sort of a restoration period, yeah, both in terms of the country and in terms of, of people. That was Sean Walker, the former Moscow correspondent for The Independent and most recently for The Guardian. Educated at Oxford University in Russian and Soviet history, he's since lived and worked as a journalist in Russia for over a decade. His new book is The Long Hangover. Putin's New Russia and the Ghosts of the Past, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Ooh, that show do feel good.